In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul tells us that the gospel is, quote, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That word concerning comes from a word that basically means encircling. The good news of God orbits around his son, Jesus. Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our international work, go to traincpe.org and to learn about our local fellowship, go to breadoflifeboise.org. When Paul identifies Jesus as God's son, he is employing the term in the highest and broadest way to understand it. He is declaring that Jesus is himself God. Later in Romans 9.5, Paul will refer to Jesus as, quote, listen, the eternally blessed God, end quote. That Jesus was God come in the flesh makes his gospel the gospel of God. Titus chapter 2.13, Paul says it in a different way. He says that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So of the Son, we say that He's God. He's not a part of God. He's not a third of God. He's God. He's all God. He's very God of very God. Now I put into our bulletin the Athanasian Creed. And last week we spoke a little bit about the Trinity. I was thinking about this. I think sometimes we hear these statements and these declarations and we don't even explore them at some point in time. We just assume them. We forget the mystery behind them. We do this as adults. We do as adults what little children wouldn't do. You know, little children, when you might mention to them that God is three in one, they inquire a little further. You've got to come up with some examples for them. That's how we get in trouble, because our examples are not always actually theologically entirely accurate, but we're trying to speak to their mind. I, I mentioned that I found the baby book that my mother had written in. I was impressed, because I'm number four, and she actually had quite a bit of information in there. My wife was number eight, and she doesn't even show up in the family pictures until she's about nine or ten. I'm there, and there's some information, and, and in it, there's an account of a debate that I had with my mother when I was about three years old, and the debate was on how God could get everywhere. As a little child, I was trying to figure out this concept of omnipresence. My mother told me, well, it's a mystery you won't understand until you get to heaven. It's like you can read it in my baby book. This is accurate. But it's too hard for you to understand, Joel, but when you get to heaven, you'll discover God is a spirit, and God will explain it to you then, but it's too hard for you to understand now. And I said, no, I think I understand. I think he breaks himself up in little bitty pieces. (laughs) But at least a little child is trying to figure these things out. He's exploring these things. He doesn't just take them at face value and, well, there's a reward in that. That's how our theology was developed. We should think about these things. The triune God, Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Athanasian dealing with the suggestion that Jesus was not divine countered it with this decree, this statement that was written down probably after he died, but it records his ideas, his thoughts. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. 
The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. It is before this triune God of eternal majesty that we come before first. And this is where we start with the Son, His Son. It speaks of His divinity. Here is, in a sense, the second stage. Jesus Christ, I said that was His earthly name that was given to Him. Christ, Him coming to earth to fulfill the role as Messiah or Anointed One. And here we see the stage where the Second person of the Trinity is born of the lineage of David, becoming a man. This is the stage of the Son's humiliation. Jesus is the human name that was given to the Son of God, as we have already said. But here is the mystery. The pre-existent Son of God, who is very God, a very God, not one part of God or a third of God, but all God, became a man and lived among us. He who is eternally in nature of God brought unto himself a human nature to live among us as he lived with us. Now the mystery of the Trinity is this, that there is one God who is one in nature and yet three in persons. And the mystery of the incarnation where the second person of the Trinity becomes a man is that the Son, by becoming a human being, doesn't cease to be God. He doesn't relinquish any part of his divine nature but he has brought into himself the fullness of our own humanity so that he's one person with two natures. In the Trinity, you have one nature, one God in three persons. In the incarnation, you have one person with two natures. It's kind of complex, it's confusing. You know, the early church had to think these things out and reason them through and they had to find out how to go with it because if they weren't careful, they'd go into error, they'd go into heresy understand who this person was, what this meant, and how it was fulfilled. They understood that he was of one person with two natures, and yet these natures were not in conflict. That they somehow came together in such a way that they didn't compromise one another. They didn't limit and diminish one another. Jesus didn't become a superhuman by somebody being on a super energized power of the divine within him. He wasn't an emergence of the divine and the human together in one entity, but he was one person with two complete developed natures, one that was already in place, eternally coexisting as God, and now humanity being brought into himself. This is a mystery. This is something to be considered. One of the considerations is this. One of the things we can draw from this is that we human beings have been made in the image of God, and as such, we are capable, in the perfection that God intended, of being united with God. And so the Son, united into His personhood, His eternal personhood, 
both the nature of all that God is and all that we human beings were created to be before we were sullied by our sins by God himself. The Chalcedonian Creed kind of explains this. So take that insert again and flip it over and let me read to you the Chalcedonian Creed. They had to address with different ideas. Some ideas that somehow there was emergence of a convergence and mingling together of God and man into one kind of solid state in which Jesus was a superhuman being or in which he had two totally separate personalities that were in a sense conflict with one another and the Chalcedonian Creed was written in about 451 and this is what they stated. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, in other words, agreement with those things that we've been taught by the Holy Fathers of the early church, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. By the way, that is the consistence of man. Man has a reasonable soul and a body, and that's what makes him a man, of one substance at the same time with the Father as regards his godhood, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin. As regards his godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, and yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change. In other words, these natures weren't confused. They weren't mingled together. There wasn't some change that was forced upon the other. When Christ took in humanity into himself, it didn't change in any way, divest him of any way of his deity, without division, without separation. It wasn't like there was this battle between the two natures roiling within the Lord Jesus. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together in one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one, the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. These things had to be thought out. They had to be considered. They had to be weighed, but they had their bearing on the gospel itself. In fact, you cannot understand and appreciate the gospel if you take away these truths or you diminish them. This is a part of what we're going to be considering. Now, when Jesus became a man... He emptied himself of the full display of his divinity. We might understand it in this way. He subliminated or laid down into his subconsciousness the exercise of certain attributes that belong to him as God alone. He set aside the exercise of his omniscience. He subliminated it into his subconsciousness. He set aside the full manifestation of his power he didn't surrender his power. He was still the all-powerful God. He didn't surrender his omniscience. He still was the all-knowing God. He didn't surrender his omnipresence. He was still God who is omnipresent in all things, in all places. But he didn't exercise himself in the full measure of any of these things. Instead, he engaged the world during the time in which he walked upon the earth in his human nature as a man. Now, there are times when there are flashes of his divinity that shine out from his life, but when you consider 
the overwhelming power of the almighty, eternal, everlasting God, it is remarkably restrained when you study the life of the Lord Jesus. Instead, Jesus experienced as a human being what it was like to learn and discover. The omniscient God, learning as a man what it's like to learn and discover. He experienced as a human pain and hunger and thirst and fatigue. You'll recall the story in which the Lord Jesus is traveling on the Sea of Galilee after a time of intensive ministry and he's exhausted and he's asleep in the boat and a massive storm rises up. The wind is blowing. It's about ready to overtake the boat and disciples have to shake him awake and say, Lord, aren't you concerned that we're going to drown? You read about in Mark chapter 4. The Lord Jesus gets up and it says he rebuked the wind and the waves said, be still and be at peace or be quiet and be at peace. And there was a sudden calm over the sea that they were about ready to be drowned in. And the remarkable thing about this is that it demonstrates that nature recognizes the voice of its creator and obeys him. Yet what might be more remarkable is that before this creator stands up to command the winds and the waves, he's so exhausted as a man that he nearly sleeps right on through the storm. He has to be awoken to address it. Again, it's as a man that the Lord Jesus will confront temptation. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. You can read that in Hebrews 4.15. And also as a human being, Jesus will face down and obey all the laws of God and he'll live a sinless life. And then as a human being, Jesus will go to the cross and die in the place of sinful people. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn more, go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.